and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I am going to try to do the intro without reading it because I never do this. What I think that's a good say? enough intro. This is Hello and Welcome to Fast Talk Potluck Edition. Right. Because but what do we say? It's your source for the science of endurance. Performance. No, you can't use science twice. <laughs> yeah. Your source for the... Watching you struggle through your own intro is pretty fantastic. I never read the intro. You have literally sat through that probably 300 times. No, no 200, I haven't because 224. we always afterwards. So Chris used to come down here by himself. <laughs> every, so I've literally never heard the intro. That makes way more sense that Chris recorded it by hello and welcome to Fast Talk. So I'm I love Chris it. I'm, I'm doing the countdown here and Rob's like, Trevor, do the intro. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Hello, I'm Chris Case. That's all that we need to say. We should just have that somewhere in the beginning of every episode. Hello, I'm Chris Case. All right. As you can tell, <laughs> we are off to a wonderful start. This is a potluck episode, unscripted. I have not brought research. I'm still terrified. <laughs> so we are here with Rob Pickles and Grant Holicky. And yeah, can this, we get this train back on the track? No, probably not. But it this is, is my happy place. This is like I come down here for a regular episode. I'm getting a hard time. I don't have notes. I don't have a computer. I don't have all this stuff. I'm watching Pickles close his laptop right now. I feel so just content. Let's just, do this. Let's dance, Holly. All right. <laughs> what do you, I have the odd man out because I actually prepared for this last night. And Grant <laughs> walks in. He's like, what are we talking about again? I didn't even know what the questions were yeah. supposed to be. Yeah. So. Hi, everyone. This is Coach Connor. Fast Talk Labs just released the newest module from the craft of coaching with Joe Friel. That's a module I'm particularly excited about. We've called it Assembling a Winning Roster, Managing Athletes and Service Providers. And it is all about how coaches can better support their athletes. When I was actively coaching, I would take my athletes to the University of Colorado Sports Medicine facility for testing and services that I could not provide. Now you can do that too through Fast Talk Laboratories. Contact us to learn more at coaches at fasttalklabs.com. Well, let's start with grants. Do you remember your question or what do, do you like to talk about? I do remember my question. So my question is to everybody here, and I think this is really relevant to all of you out there because let me start with this. One of my favorite or least favorite, depending on how I look at it, sports moments is NBC Sports during the Olympics when Michael Phelps was Michael Phelps. Always used to show Phelps in the ready room for swim meets with the Phelps face on, right? He just looked angry at the world. He'd have his headphones on. He'd have that look on his face. It became a meme for a while. And he just looked angry. And I remember all of my swimmers after that trying to do that before they raced, right? They'd be in the corner, they'd be listening to Metallica and they'd have their face all screwed up. And some of them went out and performed beautifully and some of them were terrible. They were an absolute disaster. So my question to you guys is, what is your perfect pre-race mentality? What's your optimal place? And we can get into the science of this and, and trust me, I love that. But how is it for you guys? What do you need to be? Do you need to be happy? Do you need to be excited? Do you need to be angry? Yeah, for me, wow, Grant, basically hearing this question for the first time. And as you're talking, <laughs> I was literally going through a mental catalog of, of how I felt and different performances, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, for me, a lot of that was track and field. To put this into context, that means 
as a sprinter, a hurdler, a jumper, all of my events were very short. And I'm giving that as the caveat to, it might be a little bit different from somebody who had a, a longer event that they did. For me though, some of my worst performances came when I was nervous, right? I remember in high school, when I first state championship where I was a shoe in to win, I was so nervous because I had to step up and I had to, I had to knock that out of the park. And I almost changed everything I did because I was nervous before the race. And I sort of flubbed it a little bit. Not too bad, I'll say. I still placed on the podium or whatever. But my mm -hmm. coach beforehand said to me, he's like, I knew you weren't going to run a personal best today because I saw how different you were treating this race because you were nervous because it mattered because you had these expectations to live up to. And that really helped me understand my performance situation moving forward. But what it took was years for me to work on the ability to change my mindset and to reframe that nervousness actually into a positive place, positive self-talk, all of these things, Grant, that you're so good at. You know, for me, it's cool, calm, collected, confident, a little bit excited. You're ready. You want to go. You're excited to get out there, but not that like pit in your stomach, which I know can motivate fear, motivate some people. But for me, it really turns everything off. I think that's really interesting of what you bring up and how you remember it and what you look at. The way that research is done on this topic is to have people remember their best performances and then go back and say, okay, what was your mood state? So very qualitative, not perfect necessarily because our brains aren't perfect, but what athletes can start to do is accumulate a catalog of good performances, bad performances, and start to have this idea of where you perform well. So for you, it's cool, calm, and collected, but so much goes into play on that. I have to be confident in my ability to do what I need to do. Do you talk yourself through that? Oh, mental talk all the time. Yeah. But what's interesting for me, I completely lack the ability to visualize things. I'm, I'm one of like a small percent of people. I cannot form a visual image in my mind. So everything that happens in my mind, and I thought this was normal, everything <laughs> is self-talk. I have conversations with myself. Yeah. Maybe that's a little schizophrenic. Well, I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, talking is a huge part of that. Yeah. And that, I mean, we can do a whole episode on self-talk. Mm -hmm. That would be <laughs> wildly interesting. But the self-talk comes into play on this too. We can come back to that. What's your ideal mental state? So let's see if you can guess mine. This was literally part of my pre-race routine for races that I care about. I would walk around the start line looking for somebody that I don't like or who really <laughs> annoys me. And I would go talk with them until they really, forgive my language, pissed me off. And then I would I get can, off I of my bike. I see this. Oh my God. I would get on my bike, oh just my go on that guy, just complain in my head about him. And that got me in the right state. That is so fantastic. Your performance in this company has really been elevated since I joined. I wonder <laughs> like, that's a good point. He's like, I'm going to hire Rob because I hate that guy. Yeah, dude. Well, This is why like every hour or two, when I'm starting to feel like my productivity is going around, I'm like, Hey Rob, let's talk for a second. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Trevor, you're the Michael Jordan of bike racing because Jordan used to look for people that disrespected him, right? Did he do the same oh, thing? oh, if you ever watched that, the yeah. documentary on Jordan, mm -hmm. it became a meme in and of itself. And I felt personally disrespected by that was what Jordan would say all the time. Then he'd go up and score a hundred points yeah. or do whatever he would do. So this is interesting actually, because other competitors never, ever, ever, ever played into my mind. Like uh, for me, when I'm competing, it's all myopic, I guess. It was all about me and me doing my personal mm -hmm. best. The other people almost didn't even exist. 
Well, I don't know that, it, that that's necessarily different, but whatever somebody needs to trigger that desire to go deep, right? So for me, it's I'm opposite end of the spectrum. I'm joy. I am all about happiness and joy. So when I, you know, you talk about reframing. Oh, damn, that pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> I want to race you more. Oh, no. <laughs> Picture a grant on so, Trevor's so, top tube. So here's what we're going to do. If Trevor and I are ever on the same team, I'm going to roll up to Trevor, middle of the race, go, isn't this fun? Are we having fun? <laughs> this is fantastic, Trevor. Go attack. Yeah, so I used to reframe, you know, my nerves. If I visualize the start line, and I actually chose to start doing this pretty regularly because my anxiety on the start line was overwhelming. So I would visualize the start of a race, get that pit in my stomach, get the butterflies that would come. And then I forced myself to picture some of my friends on that start line doing something that was made me laugh, made me smile. And that brought me back into that whole place of this is joyous for me. This is why I do this because I'm 49 a couple of weeks. I don't need to do this, right? Like it hurts. Cross hurts. Sure does. So what do we want to find? If you want to find some of the research on this, it's called eyes off, individualized zone of optimal functioning, individual zone of optimal functioning. And it's really some interesting stuff of what it takes for certain people. But Trevor is in a minority, but there, you are in a minority with that, but it's, it's a significant minority that yeah. like anger. You ever see the movie uh, Conan the Barbarian? Yes. What is the meaning of life? Do you remember that scene? <laughs> yes. I have that memorized because it is my motivator. <laughs> I, I don't. Can you go through it for me? <laughs> to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation. And I'll end there because it's really politically incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is a really interesting topic just in general because everybody is different, right? And what they're going to play into and what they need. But that's interesting to hear your anger. Grant, can you actually, I mean, you're the expert in this area. Can you describe some other strategies or mental states maybe that people are in? Just just so that listeners can have the breath beyond just the three of us. Yeah. I, well, go ahead. I also have a second question before we get too off topic, because here's what I want to ask. Like, I love to race enjoying it, being joyful like you, but I can't rise above myself. Mm -hmm. I find the reason I go for anger is when there's somebody that I just like, I have to beat that guy. I can go deeper into that pain cave. I can push myself further than I can't when I'm just having fun and enjoying it. So I'm interested in hearing also your thoughts on that. Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, I am hugely motivated by that piece of the puzzle. Like I can go out and race and go just whatever happens, do not lose to pickles. So I could flat, I could fall off my bike, I could break a leg. I'm going to finish that race to beat pickles or beat whomever. And as a friend of mine once joked that we all have three people in every race, we have the guy we know we should beat. We have the person that, you know, they'll beat us, we'll beat them. And then we have that person just, man, if we beat them, we've had a killer race and we know we have. But what we're talking about more than anything else is pre-race. What's that place that you can be that allows you to go to the line, as Rob was saying, cool, calm, and collected with your eyes on your target. So that all of those mental states that I kind of mentioned, excitement can be one, happiness can be one, anger can be one, and, and they're more scientifically delineated than that. This isn't one of those episodes, but we could pull the research out and go through those categories one by one. 
But I think the main thing is that everybody is very individual with this. Hence why it's called individual zone of optimal functioning, because it could be a combination of multiple things. You could be really excited to race, but at the same time, derive your motivation to hurt from beating people. Grant, as you're talking through this, it reminded me of, of someone, and that's Usain Bolt. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, but he's somewhat famous for how he interacts with the people that hold the basket that he puts his clothes and shoes into before he gets in the starting blocks of the Olympics or world championships or anything else. And he's always joking with them. He's mm-hmm. high-fiving with them. He's yep. smiling. He's laughing. The fastest man in the world in the most intense event you could ever possibly dream of. And he's just like chilling on the start line. And it's so awesome to watch. Right. And what we're trying to do when we work with athletes on eyes off and getting them to theirs is where do we get you to be autonomic? Where do we get you to be in a place where you're not having to think actively about what you're about to go do? This is the whole point of training, right? Can we make what we're going to do really autonomic? And so for some people like Usain Bolt, that is... I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to take in this moment. I know what I need to do. I've got this down. And maybe they have a very quick mindful switch of five seconds that goes, okay, now I'm going to let it all come in. And I had an athlete, very, very good swimmer, that when she was young, she used to ask one of her friends to come to the blocks and tell her jokes. And she would tell her jokes, and then they'd blow the whistle. She'd get up on the blocks. That was her frame, and she could zero in on it, and then she'd go swim great. But the second that frame changed, she was in trouble because she didn't have other strategies at play. So if they, somebody false started, there was a twitch, there was a noise, and they brought people down. I remember being by the pool vividly at a big meet looking at it, and they brought everybody off the blocks, and I just put my head in my hands. And a couple other swimmers went, why? I'm like, just watch. And she had a terrible race. So understanding, A, what is your optimal zone of functioning, and B, how do I then come back out of that and go back into that kind of as needed? And that's where the mental training really comes into play. You have to work that the way you'd work intervals or the way you'd work strength work. Now, Grant, I know that you said this is very individual, right? Mm-hmm. A, a part of the name of, of this system. Do you, though, see any trends across sports, across, say, power sports, endurance sports, skill-based sports? It, does the dart player who has a beer beforehand, <laughs> does that actually help? There is some really interesting research about power sports and short duration, high intensity, but they did most of that on grip strength. So anger comes into a better play in, in grip strength tests. Swearing actually helps in grip strength tests. Put the right person in front of Trevor and his grip strength is going to go through the roof. What I'm saying. (laughs) So if I yell out, I love carrots as I like do a deadlift, it's not going to help me. Not as much as I bleep and love carrots. carrots. Yeah, perfect. When has anybody ever yelled, I love carrots? Well, you know, Bugs Bunny may have. Maybe you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Okay. Maybe that's why you can't deadlift. (laughs) (laughs) i have to cut that sorry well if you heard episode 204 then you're definitely not offended by grant saying over here so thanks i i really enjoy that and again part of the whole idea of potluck is to get you guys thinking about this and talking about this so there's a starting point for this week well it's a good conversation so we dive into mine yeah let's do it and you have no idea how much i struggled last night i 
wanted to grab the studies. I wanted to get my research. Don't do it. Well, you got three screens up. You, you got self, something going self-talk on. Self-talk yourself out of that. They're, they're not here, but no, I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is going to be hard. This is, yeah, uh, I'm hurting without my research. I just got up and walked around and looked at his screen. There's so many words. All the words. If I had my computer, it'd just be pictures. <laughs> <laughs> So what you can't see here is this, is this is my new toy. I just got it last <laughs> night. It's a extended monitor for my computer, but it latches onto your computer. It's two screens on either side. I look like I'm trying to take over the world. It looks really cool. Great. I think there are some nuclear codes somewhere hidden in that contraption. Probably. It's a lot of fun. So they might I can't not work, use but they're in there. any of it because we said we wouldn't do this. This is going to be, so here's getting angry. Okay. This is going to be a battle between Grant and I. Oh, Let's see where this one right, goes. Right, right, right. For many of us in North America, the road racing season is winding down. You can test your end-of-season fitness with Fast Talk Labs. Just schedule an inside advanced test with us. Your inside test results will reveal your VO2 max, up-to-date training zones, anaerobic threshold, carb max, fat max, VLA max, then it'll suggest a path forward for better training and fitness. Learn more at FastTalkLabs.com. So the thing I wanted to talk about, I am a little Nazi-ish with my athletes in terms of sticking to one energy system. Like, so when I build a plan for my athletes, I give them one workout, maybe two, when we're talking about intervals, and they do that same workout for four, six, eight weeks before I give them their next workout. I know with your athletes, it kind of changes up. I think some days you might just kind of make it up as you're writing it. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but no, I, I do love to mix energy systems. So let's talk about this. And it's, it's both mixing energy systems and should you be repeating the same workouts? Like, like week? straight up the same. <laughs> really? I will give my athletes what, a, an interval routine. You and just, that's the, is there any joy in your life at all? Just, <laughs> you just pound your head against the same wall? <laughs> oh, the teeth are gritting. This is working. I, I, I'm just trying to get angry with people. <laughs> I get angry with the workout. It's the same damn workout as last oh time. Oh my I'm God, I'm going Oh, I'm going to crush it. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with this, uh, man. <laughs> I'm actually wondering what this is saying about my life. So far, we've covered the fact that I'm weird because I... I get motivated by anger. Well, you're not weird. Uh, I have a strange computer setup, and I'm boring with my workouts. This speaks to your methodicalness. Is that a word? Yeah. Okay. Maniacalness. Strangely, not actually the way I would think of myself. But you're right. I'm getting that picture now. I'm kind of yeah, methodical. You are methodical, and I. But this even comes back to a little bit of what we were talking about. In my question: Everybody has a different way to go through how they arrange thoughts in their head or how they go down the tunnel, right? This is not the only place I get a hard time. You know, my wife, we've been together a long time and she still looks at me and thinks I'm just a train wreck underprepared. You know, I think she sees me as pig pen walking through the world with the cloud of dust coming up behind me, stuff all over the place. <laughs> but to me, some of that disorder is how I find my order. And if I write things down, I feel like I get too married to it. I get too committed to it. And so a big part of where I go with my training method is I personally really worry about 
overdoing the periodization, putting it too far out because things change so dramatically in people's lives or in their training or in their recovery or in all those pieces. And for me, if I lay it all out that much, I won't leave it. I have a really hard time then going, this isn't working. We need to move. And so that is part of why I like to keep things kind of mixed up. I also personally, and this is Total side note, why you need to find that coach that works specifically for you, because I coach the way I would want to be coached. If I did the same workout too many times in a row, I'd probably take my bike and huck it off something really tall. See, now I have an athlete who I coach who doesn't like it when I change up his workouts. And he said this to me. Yeah. Like, at one point I change his work. I'm like, he's like, why are you changing? I'm like, <laughs> well, you, you've been doing that last one for seven weeks. You must be getting bored. He's like, no, it gives me comfort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hold on. That, that word though. Comfort. Is perfect. I mean, that's a perfect description of what's going on here. Right. And for me, when we begin discussing this, these are sort of the intangibles, right? Where... I don't care what research says. I'm worried about the athlete as a holistic being. Right. And is one better than the other? Sure. There might be research that says exactly this periodization is exactly the right thing to do. But if the athlete mentally can't find comfort, if they can't be okay with that, it throws them for a loop every single time. That athlete is not going to adapt and perform like they should. Well, and vice versa. On the other end of the spectrum, there's that athlete that you're talking about that doesn't want things to change because this is comfortable. This makes sense. This is what I can do. And and that's why there's a spectrum of coaches, right? We've talked about this. You have a purely anecdotal coach on one end of the spectrum who's only just learned by being in the sport and coaching in the sport. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have the pure sports scientists. I think this Dr. Seiler brings this up, that coaches are learning in the field what sports scientists are learning in the lab. So where do you fall on that spectrum? And I know that I come from that spectrum from the anecdotal side, and I've learned the science and taught myself those things as I've gone through. And other coaches come from a very different angle. Well, let's go a little bit into the science, even though I don't have my research. Sorry. <laughs> what about the argument that... If I'm Pigpen, you're Linus, and research is your blanket. Well, I'm very, actually, I, lo- <laughs> I, I, I loved Peanuts as a kid, and Linus was definitely my favorite character. Sweet. All right. I actually dressed up as him for multiple Halloweens. Oh, we're so on to something here. Yeah, which is really hard to do because he's just a kid, so really all I did was walk around with the blanket. It was a great costume. I tried. Okay, sweet. <laughs> You're trying to suck your thumb. <laughs> How were you not successful at that? Some people. I had a rough childhood. You know, he had a really high, bad hand-eye coordination. <laughs> Kept poking himself Kept poking in the eye. eye. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we need video. <laughs> so what about this idea that it's additive, that you don't get the benefits necessarily from one workout, but you need to keep hitting that system over and over again to really see the benefits. And if you're hitting multiple systems, you're doing a little bit of damage to each, but maybe not enough to adapt. What's your your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think there's value in that, but I also think there's no such thing as hitting one system, right? I mean, you can go out and do the perfect lactate workout and you're still getting something for every energy system, right? This is something that we kind of talk about a lot. That's a misconception that I'm training this energy system. You're training all your energy systems, but you're primarily focused on this one. So my take on that part is 
That's one piece of it, right? That we're always training a little bit of everything. Second piece of it is for me and the majority of the people that I coach, this is particularly true for cyclocross. You never race in one energy system. You're racing all over the board. And I do think there's a lot of value. I will say this, that as we go into, say, mountain bike nationals, and the U.S. mountain bike nationals course has sustained climbs. It's good old-fashioned U.S. mountain biking, sustained fire road climbing. The training for those people that are going to that race is altered pretty dramatically. We're going to focus on that specific energy system. We're going to see that repeated. If somebody's going and doing a stage race with a lot of climbing, we're going to see that type of energy system repeated. So I will do that. I'm not going to go down that road and say I won't do it. What I will try to do is have four separate workouts that all train the same energy system that are enough different that keeps it interesting. Keeps it interesting because again, that was that would be what I would want. Yeah, Grant, I can't tell if I agree or disagree with you, which is maybe allegory for our life, to tell you the <laughs> truth. <laughs> We haven't uh, known each other a while. In the beginning of what you said, I was like, this guy is off his rocker. But then you like 180 halfway through that. Yep. And I thought I was going to stand opposed to you when I say that, you know, Trevor, I think that you and I are perhaps a little bit more on the same page where I, I kind of agree when we're talking about a stimulus for adaptation that we can be a bit more focused working on different intensities or interval durations to really try to upregulate some certain things within our body. But then, Grant, I also kind of agree with you toward the end there where which matters, what do you do when, all of that has to do with the goal and the purpose of what you're doing. What do you need to be good at to perform well? So I don't know. I think that we're actually all in kind of the same page yeah. that if you focus on one type of workout, then you're going to get the maximum well, benefit of that. What motivated me to make this my topic point is exactly that is, I mean, I certainly have my bias here. And I do some of what you do as well. Like, so yeah. if I give my athletes anaerobic capacity work, I give them three options. I go, I'll you know, pick one, whatever one feels best that yeah. day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But they all work. Looking at the research, and I didn't bring the research here, but I do, it was actually looking at some research that motivated me to go, here's what I want to talk about. Because I've seen it go both ways in the mm -hmm. research. Here's the best example I can give you is Dr. Steven Seiler. Mm -hmm. Published that study where it's by memory. I'm not looking at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Published it's, that study it's tattooed on his left forearm. <laughs> let's, let's come on, doing guys. different periodizations of four by fours, four by eights, four by sixteens. Right. Yep. And he had one group that went up, so fours, then eights, then sixteens. Another group that went down, so sixteens, eights, fours. Another group where they could pick every time they worked out which one they wanted to do and just mix it up. Mm -hmm. And the group that saw the the least gains was the group that mixed it up. Mm -hmm. So the well, the other two groups were, were pretty similar. So that was his conclusion of that study. It's that mixing it up doesn't work as well. Mm -hmm. But then we've had Dr. Seiler on the show say, <laughs> it's really about just doing time and intensity. Yeah. They all work through the same pathway. So yeah. it doesn't matter. So here's even one researcher who's right. proved both points. Well, Ooh. and that's kind of why I chuckled when you brought up Seiler, because I mean, that's the thing. I mean, this is a little bit with research. I mean, if you do enough research, you're going to contradict your own research. And I, I think there's something to that too. I don't want anybody to get me wrong here. I'm not like, you know, putting a blindfold on and then hucking a dart at the wall and that's the workout. I just like variety, but I do feel like there is that value in that workout, whatever that workout is. And for certain athletes, they will do that workout once a month. 
because they derive comfort from it. They derive yeah. fitness. Like this is my marker. This is where I know I am. But there are plenty of people out there. I mean, I remember talking to a pro tour rider who says, I only do three workouts and this is where I do them. That's yeah. it. That's all he does. Now, granted, this guy's been down the road a bit. He knows exactly what he needs and he's playing through those depending on what race is coming up and how. I want to go back to Dr. Seiler real quick and, and maybe not as a response specifically to that, but when we're discussing changes that are occurring and effects that training or supplements or anything has, right? Something to always remember about research is at what point does it become significant enough to matter practically, right? And we can say time and zone is going to get you the majority of the way there. And right. for a lot of people, that's enough. But maybe you get another few percent by doing it exactly in this order. For some people, that's very important, but for other people, that's not important at all. And so it comes down to the individual nature of it. Always. I've been having this conversation with some of my riders on the cross team that I run. One of the riders was asking us, I can't remember what it was, but it was very much in that realm of the Ineos marginal gains. And we were looking at him and, and we went, dude, you don't need marginal gains. You need maximal gains. <laughs> it's true. Yep. <laughs> and with so many of the athletes that we're talking about, what are the maximal gains? How do I get them to just do threshold stuff? That's usually not the battle. Let's be honest. How do I get you to do really high end work? How do I yep. get you to do cadence work? How do I get you to do these things that are really important in the big picture, but they don't feel important? There is one workout I've given to every single one of my athletes. I've explained to them the benefits of it. I have yet to have a single athlete actually do it. Because it was impossible or because... It's actually really easy. It's cadence pyramids on rollers. Oh, yeah. I want yeah. them, after they're done with the ride, to just hop on the rollers and do a cadence pyramid and then call it a day. And they'd never do it. Oh, yeah. I figured out how to get people to start doing cadence stuff on a regular basis, but it, it was a battle. And But I will tell you this... I love the idea of people going out, doing two hours, coming inside, getting on the trainer, getting on the rollers and knocking out their intervals. I love that. Theoretically, it's fantastic. Andy Pruitt always used to talk about it, how great it is to do stuff on the compu trainers of the trainers because you can go so deep that you could black out and fall off your bike and it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> and, and there's something uh, to that. I think that, that kind of contradicts itself. If you're blacking out... There's probably pain involved at some point. Anything well, worth doing is worth overdoing. Come on. <laughs> but what he meant was you can go really deep on hard intervals and not have to worry about looking at the road. Yes. But getting somebody to come inside and get on a trainer after riding outside. A little tough. A little tough. A little tough. Yep. So I think before we leave my topic, I'm not sure we concluded anything. I've got to go back to this calling me methodical. So... <laughs> I've got to say what I could still consider the best compliment I've ever gotten in my life, which I am a hundred percent certain was not meant as a compliment <laughs> was from Peter Reed, who told me that I was the most tenacious and stubborn athlete he had ever met. And when a world Ironman champion says yep. you are the most tenacious yeah, athlete he's ever met. Man. That's saying something. And now you're calling me really methodical. I'm, I'm, trying to get this picture of myself and I'm not sure I like this as I'm oh, looking at my three monitor death <laughs> setup. Listen, man, I was not calling you methodical <laughs> as a uh, insult. I look at methodical people the way you're methodical and I wish my mind worked like that because I think it 
I don't know, man. I feel like it should be easier to be that way. God, no. Next up, the I love you, bros. (laughs) Just think about what it takes to carry this around with you. (laughs) All right, that's fair. I walked in here with a phone. (laughs) And flip-flops. Listeners, as the cycling season starts to wind down, your data is important as ever. We know sifting through those numbers can feel daunting. Good news. We have over 30 years of coaching and data analysis experience. You go race, leave the analysis to us. Book your data analysis session today at fasttalklabs.com slash solutions. All right, Rob, what do you have for us? I have a story. As always, this one does not involve honey, um, like the last one did. Sad. Okay, Pooh Bear. I know. I was thinking that when you guys were saying Linus and Pigpen over there, I was like, I'm Pooh Bear. And that's just a totally different comic strip. That's fine. (laughs) You're still wearing the half shirt. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So let's set the stage for this one because ultimately I think the context is important. I ran track and field in high school. It was very important to me. Important to me enough to the point that I didn't get my driver's license on time because I would have had to have missed track practice to do driver's ed and all of those things. It was important to me enough that I did not go to high school graduation. I went to the New England's track meet instead. And at that New England's track meet, I was doing well. I was winning to the last hurdle. I was going to win the championship on the day that I skipped my high school graduation. And that last hurdle was wood. And when I was a little bit too close, I was a half step too close. And I came up, my spike stuck into the wood. My lead leg stopped but my body kept going and I... Did you break something? I face-planted on that ground so hard. And in my desperation to cross the finish line, I didn't get up. I just flopped like a fish. (laughs) I'm not joking. As everyone ran past me. And it's the first and maybe only time in my life that I got a pity clap from everybody in the stands. Mm. And so my question to you is, what big failure or what big thing didn't go right And how did it shape you moving forward? Mine was pretty simple. And it it wasn't a singular event. I can't point to the moment my cleats hit the hurdle. This was a swimming thing for me. Uh, You know, I played three sports growing up. I played soccer, which I kind of liked. I played baseball, which I adored. And I swam. And I was a very good swimmer. I was probably a little bit of a better baseball player, but the timing of it didn't pan out. But my problem with swimming, and this really extended when I became a triathlete, was I would get so focused on whatever that time was, whatever that result was, and would just chronically fall short. In high school, the school record was 102.14. And I went 102.36. You know, in college, Going under a minute in the 100 breaststroke was the ticket to D3 Nationals, and I went 10001 twice. Twice. <laughs> I mean, I vividly remember being in the locker room at DePaul University and hucking the medal of winning the event against the wall and breaking it in 15,000 pieces because I didn't care if I won. I care if I made nationals. So for me, it very much became this repetitive thing of I was so focused on what that result was going to be that I couldn't deal with the process. That carried into triathlon. When I was racing triathlon, air quote, professionally, I made a grand total of $1,500 in my entire professional triathlon career. 
<laughs> but I was categorized as a pro. Yeah, you were. And I really wasn't able to start changing it till I started racing bikes as a master's athlete. And I think that struggle pushed me towards sports psychology as mental performance as a coach before I even went to school for it. And I, I spent a ton of time looking at human behavior, spent a ton of time looking at what other people did. And then it drove me to go to grad school. Trevor? Talking about failures that I remember. I'm kind of overwhelmed with all the options here. <laughs> Talk about running over my own bike with my car at a stage race that I was winning. Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, that was a pretty good one. I, I can keep going. You um, taught him to look in his mirrors. <laughs> yeah, actually what you just had, I'll share my story in a minute, but what you just got me thinking about is I had an interesting experience. I was just home visiting my family. And we were, I was talking with my parents about all my racing and shared a couple good moments. And they commented, oh, we didn't know that. And then brought up the fact that the whole time I was racing, all I was ever telling them about was the things that went wrong. And here's the thing. A lot does go wrong. There are a lot of failures. And it's very easy to miss all your successes because you're so caught up in all the things that didn't work out. And I definitely did a lot of that during my career. I was always... And I wish I could go back and, and fix this. I was never celebrating my successes because I was always looking at the next thing that I hadn't accomplished yet. Yeah. And, and, and very typical of athletes. Very, very typical of athletes. Yep. But when you sent us this topic, Rob, the, the thing that just I never got over, and I'm not sure what my, my lesson is from this. I have a little bit of one, but it was Canadian Nationals 2011. Previous year, I'd had a good race. I missed third place by about 100 meters. I was broken away solo. Two guys were up the road, Will Routley and uh, I think Andrew Randall, and Will won. But I was solo third coming into the finishing stretch, and the group behind me caught me 100 meters from the line. It hurt. But 2011, I, I was twice as fit, feeling really good about nationals. It was in Ontario. My whole family was there watching. And it started with a bit of flats and then a downhill. And I will admit, I was struggling a bit on the flats because it was a narrow road. There was no shoulder. I had just had a pretty bad crash at North Star or whatever they called the race back then a couple of weeks before. So I was a little spooked and I knew I needed to move up, but I wasn't. And I watched Swain Tuff literally go into the grass and move to the front. And he ultimately won the race. I should have followed him. I didn't. <laughs> So it was a little too far back. There was a steep descent. We went down it. There was a crash. I could have completely avoided the crash, no problem. But the guy beside me, he was a cat three. He was flipping out. He just lost it, fell over, landed on me, took me down with him. This was seven minutes into the race. Oh. I got him off of me and tried to get on my bike. I then solo did the biggest 30-minute wattage I've ever done in my life. And then I was out. That, that was the race. And I had been building up for that. I'd put so much money into the travel and everything mm -hmm. else for that race. And my family watched that. It killed me. So I don't know if you ask me what my biggest failure is, that is it. And I don't know what the lesson is, except what I've taken away from it is sometimes you have things that you really care about. You do everything right. And something that's out of your control happens and that's it. And you got to be okay with that. You have to. And I was never okay with it. Yeah. You know, for me, it is, it's, it's that takeaway, that take home, that learning ultimately that, that changes 
these big challenges, these big quote unquote failures in our life. You know, and, and for me, I'll sort of wrap my story up with more of an uplifting situation where for me, maybe in the moment I was pretty disappointed, right? Because I, I gave up a lot. My family wanted me. Why are you, I want to go to your graduation. Right. Are you going to miss it? You're not going to get your diploma and all of this. But what I realized after this, once a day or so had gone by, was that I was still okay with the decision that I made. Yeah. That it wasn't really about going there and winning this race. It was about going there and trying, about going there and trying to do my best. And so I think that I could have gone one of two ways, right? To be very afraid of sort of going out and taking these big risks. But really, it, it caused me to double down and to say, hey, you know what? These things are important to me and I do need to recognize that. And I can make decisions that make me happy, even if there's some non-traditional or yeah. quote unquote risky sort of decisions. But I just remember that really ever since that day, it has really reframed how I've looked at what quote unquote failure is. And I'm very fortunate that I think I kind of figured that out relatively early in my life. Well, I was about to say the fact that you figured it out in high school puts you way ahead of the curve. You know, there's two ways to look at failure. One is as an endpoint and one as the stimulus for growth. Mm -hmm. Yes. And for coaches, there's two ways to address failure. One is to address it with criticism and one is to address it with feedback. And those two words are very, very different. Criticism is focused on what went wrong and what the athlete did wrong. Feedback is focused on what we can improve, what we can change and what we can go forward from. And so I don't know a great athlete who, I mean, there's the, the, another Jordan quote, all these shots I've missed are what makes me who I am. I don't know a great athlete who hasn't been successful without epic failure. One of my favorite interviews ever was with Dean Golich. Mm -hmm. so we were talking about success and failure and quick context. He has worked with a lot of Olympians. Oh, Dean's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And he said, you get to see all these athletes right after they win the medal and talk about their success. I get the two years before that of failure and tears and self-doubt and wanting to quit. Mm -hmm. He's like, you don't see those in the interviews. And they said, that's the normal state. The excitement after they won the medal is just a brief moment in between a whole lot of failures. And I think we, we stigmatize failure. We're so concerned about failing, but I will make the argument, we can't progress, we can't improve, we can't hit a high level without failing. When I first started trying to get into the, the mind and how the mind pertains to sport, I didn't go and read books by great athletes. I read, went and read human behavior books or human development books. And one of the big pieces they talk about, and this is a big part of growth mindset and what Carol Dweck talks about with the idea of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. But if you ever watch a baby learn to walk, they fall all over themselves. Our mind literally cannot learn from success. Right. We go do something well, it just says, okay, we did something well. You go make a mistake or a failure, that's how you learn. That's the process of learning because now you have to make a correction, you have to change the habit, and then you have to move forward to have the success. So without failure, we didn't learn. So this is one of the things that I'll say to athletes a lot, especially swimmers. I mean, they would go out and do something epic the first time they ever did it. And, and they, I would, I've literally said to a kid, that was great. You didn't learn anything. I'm like, what are you talking about? I learned. I said, well, what'd you learn? I learned I can go that fast. Okay, well, you learned that, but you're going to forget that the second you go slower because you're going to try to figure out how in the world you ever went that fast. Mm -hmm. So those failures and, and that idea, and, and 
coaches of young athletes, I implore you celebrate failure. Yes. Celebrate risk. Well, and I think that in society today, right, and, and this is sort of maybe some commentary on social media is oftentimes we only see the best of people, but we see our entire life and the things that stick with us personally are the things that didn't go well. Right. And, and I look at Grant's Instagram and I say, oh my God, Grant's in these great places. He's doing all these, you know, perfect things. And, and you can say that about everyone out there. And you think that no one else is in that same situation that you are but everybody is in that same situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we do have these setbacks, you know, what, what people say, right? Ultimately it's how you deal with that, mm -hmm. how you get back on your bike. And that's why I love, you know, cyclocross and coaching cyclocross, yeah. especially junior cyclocross, yeah. like you bring up, because one of the things that I always told my riders is at some point in this race, something is going to yep. go wrong. You're going to crash. Somebody's going to ride you in the tape. You're going to roll a tubular. Who knows what it is? What really matters is what you do the moment after that. That defines your race. Well, I think there's a great, you make a great point with that. And I, I have two things that I really want to bring up. And this is in my wheelhouse. So I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit. But one of those things is that this is why it's so important to have your routine and your thing and how you want to prepare. Because when that thing goes wrong, then you can accept it as the blame. One of the biggest struggles that Trevor's having with his is that he didn't really feel like he had control over that. Now, I can, I can draw that out and say, you have control over everything. You knew you needed to move up. So ultimately, That's that was your why fault. I've never gotten over it because I always look back and go, I saw Swain go up. I right. knew I should have gone with him. And I was just spooked from a previous race and I didn't go. But that other piece, like one of my big issues was Reno Nationals. I was having an amazing year in, in 2017. I, I won Pan Ams before it was Pan Ams. I had, the, this is all master stuff, but I was racing great. Went to nationals. I raced the entire year on a PDX front and an MXP rear. So heavy tread front, low tread rear. I raced ultimate like bog races in that just because that's what I had. And I couldn't mess with it too much. I was worried about running the team. I wasn't messing with my tires. Got there, had a buddy. He's like, oh, you can ride my all MXP. So I did. I'm sitting in fourth, running down the top three. I was going to make the podium, no problem. Roll the tire. Mm. Got done with the race. Asked the dude, hey, when was the last time you glued these? Oh, a couple of years ago. No. And just had that moment of, hey, that's all on me. I changed my routine. I should have known what I want to go in. So going through those things at least puts it on you. The other thing that I really want to bring up and I don't know where we put this and maybe it's a standalone statement, but how we treat kids and their failures varies dramatically. And there's research on this, on how we treat girls and boys. Mm. We teach boys to fail. We do not teach girls to fail. Interesting. And we don't teach girls to fail physically. One of the things that's super interesting is you watch a boy fall down at eight. What do we say to that boy? Hey, good falls. Walk it off. Do this. What is it? Girl falls down at eight. Everybody in the, building comes running over to make sure they're okay. And we need to have that, that idea of, we care about you. We're sorry. We're hurt. You're hurt. Are you okay? Is everything all right? Great. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off. Let's go try it again and not avoid it. I think the strategy should not be helping kids to avoid any sort of failure. I'm sorry, this, we're getting on soapboxes and, and I apologize about that, but you know, the whole everybody's a winner, give everybody a medal. I hate that because you're yeah. not teaching failure. 
the, the, what you should be doing is allowing kids to fail, but help them, help them to learn from it, help them to, to pick themselves back up, but get them to pick themselves yeah, back up. Yeah, give them the support. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love this question, right? And I love this question from the context of, I think everybody ought to take that minute and go, what was my failure and what did I learn from that failure? Yeah. And as one of you guys was saying earlier, the whole idea of working from people's strengths, what are my strengths? That I have my failures, but what did I do? Well, you were mentioning this about when you were a kid, if we're too focused on failures, one of my big pieces of philosophy as a mental performance coach is we need to play into what your strengths are. What are we doing really, really well? We need to remind people of that. Yeah. You know, Grant, I'm happy that you brought up, you know, everybody's sort of thinking about this, taking that minute, because I think that that's really important. But what I'd be interested in is actually hearing and seeing what other people, what did they take away from their failures? You know, and and that's something like, you know, definitely drop us a line on on Twitter or something like that and, and just get that conversation out there at like at Fast Talk Labs would be awesome because I think that we can all learn from each other on this one and, and say, hey, it's okay. And that's the whole point of these conversations, right? I mean, we look at Trevor's topic. What do you enjoy as an athlete? We look at yeah. my topic. What's your ideal pre-race routine or state? We'd love to hear this stuff and, and it helps us. And we swore we're not going to use research with these episodes, but in and of itself, that kind of feedback is research. Well, guys, it's a pretty good potluck today. I liked our wealth of questions, our diversity that we had here. Should we do another one? I kind of like these, but then again, you know. You're kind of in flip-flops, so, you know. I, this is my this is my MO. This is your jam. I love putting Trevor in this situation, though, too. This computer setup has helped me in no way, shape, or form whatsoever. I am staring at all these things. I'm like, I can't use this. He's Why got, am I he, looking at this? He's got Minesweeper on one page. He's got... Tetris on it. Actually, I've got a nutrient density table over here. I've got clips from past episodes over here. I, I have, not for this episode, a bunch of research in front of me on the main screen. Perfect. And I can't use any of it. <laughs> Brad, what the hell are you doing to me? Good things, my friend. Good things. <laughs> Well, this has been no fun whatsoever. Thank you very much. (laughs) So this was Lousy Opinions. Don't listen to any of them. (laughs) Check us out on the website if you haven't been totally ruined on our show. And yeah, fasttalklabs.com. Thanks. For the long-haired Grant Holicky, the needs a haircut Trevor Connor, and the I just got a haircut Tuesday Rob Pickles, thanks for listening.